This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 18th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university, and it's a, it's a huge honor to have Billy Collins with us this evening, former U.S. Poet Laureate, author of uh, 10 published volumes of poems. His poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and some other kind of places we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, he is a poet like none you have ever experienced before in a live setting like this. Would you give a Writer's Symposium welcome to Billy Collins? Well, I feel the pressure is a little on now, something you've never heard of. Uh, Great to be here and part of the symposium by the sea. It's great to do anything by the sea, um, even a symposium. And thank you, Dean, for for guiding me around. So I'm going to read a few poems, and then uh, we're going to have a little conversation. And I'm going to start with a couple of new poems. Um, And this one is... uh, is uh, about uh, what begins to be about a, uh, an American natural phenomenon that some of you uh, have heard of and maybe even witnessed. And it's called the Sandhill Cranes of Nebraska. Too bad you weren't here six months ago, was a lament I heard on my visit to Nebraska. You could have seen the astonishing spectacle of the Sandhill Cranes, thousands of them feeding and even dancing on the shores of the Platte River. There was no point in pointing out the impossibility of my being there then because I happened to be somewhere else. So I nodded and put on a look of mild disappointment, if only to be part of the commiseration. It was the same look I remember wearing about six months ago in Georgia when I was told that I had just missed the spectacular annual outburst of azaleas brilliant against the green backdrop of spring, and the same in Vermont six months before that, (laughs) when I arrived shortly after the magnificent foliage had gloriously peaked, Mother Nature, as she is called, having touched the hills with her many-colored brush, a phenomenon that occurs, like the others, around the same time every year, when I am apparently off in another state, (laughs) stuck in a motel lobby, with the local paper and a styrofoam cup of coffee, busily missing God knows what. So lurking, uh, or even more overtly, in pretty much every poem, there's a little indebtedness, because poems don't come out of uh, nowhere, and there's usually some trigger, some preceding, Phenomena. In this case, I don't think I would have written that poem were it not for um, a former poet laureate and a wonderful poet, Howard Nemiroff. And um, a while back, a number of us were asked to, uh, a number of writers were asked to make up a new word and to uh, someone who's going to compile a dictionary, and they actually 
went ahead and did that of new words. And the idea was not to be funny, it was to actually find uh, a hole in the language where a word should be and then and fill it with a made-up word. But the best word in the, uh, in the dictionary, I thought, was by Howard Nemiroff. And uh, <clears throat> it was a verb, transitive verb, and the verb was to azaleate. And uh, <laughs> you can almost guess, to azaleate someone means... Uh, to needlessly commiserate with some visitor about a local attraction that they just missed by arriving too late or will miss because they're leaving too early. So, so you have all been azaleated, I'm sure. So this poem is, uh, this next poem is, um, the transition here is that this poem is an example of the greatest, most overt um, indebtedness a poem can exhibit. And that occurs when a poet wants to write a version of a, of a particular poem by someone else. And there's a little protocol involved, and that is you use the same title as the, as the poem you're imitating. And then under that, you use the expression after with the author's name. So you say after Whitman, or you know this, after Matthew Arnold. And I wanted to write a poem... Uh, uh, an imitation, if you will, or a version of a poem by the Chinese poet Li Po. And his poem is called Drinking Alone. So I wrote Drinking Alone on a piece of paper, and under it I wrote after Li Po, and then I got completely tangled up in the expression after Li Po. <laughs> so this is as far as it got. <clears throat> Drinking Alone after Li Po. This is not after Li Po the way the state is after me for neglecting to pay all my taxes, nor the way I am after the woman in front of me on the long line at the post office. Li Po, I am not saying after you as I stand holding open one of the heavy glass doors that divide the centuries in a long corridor of glass doors. No, the only way this is after you is in the way they say it's just one thing after another like the way I will pause to raise a glass of wine to you after I finish writing this poem. So let me get back to sitting in the wind alone among the pines with a pencil in my hand. After all, you had your turn, and mine will soon be done. Then someone else will sit here after me. Thank you. And uh, just to <laughs> underscore the fact that poems can have very uh, common origins, um, and also uh, I do in this poem what I do in several poems, which I, I sort of include the trigger of the poem, in, in, include the way it started for me, so as not to get too far ahead of anybody. And the poem is called Cheerios. One bright morning in a restaurant in Chicago, as I waited for my eggs and toast. I opened the Tribune, only to discover that I was the same age as Cheerios. <laughs> Indeed, I was a few months older than Cheerios. For today, the newspaper announced was the 70th birthday of Cheerios, whereas mine had occurred earlier in the year. Already I could hear them whispering behind my stooped and threadbare back. Why, that dude's older than Cheerios.
the way they used to say, why, that's as old as the hills. <laughs> Only the hills are much older than Cheerios or any American breakfast cereal. And more noble and enduring are the hills, I surmised, as a bar of sunlight illuminated my orange juice. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And here's a poem that is a um, kind of uh, addresses a language tick, you know, something that, uh, uh, a way of phrasing things that infects the language and uh, takes over. And it's called After the Funeral. When you told me you needed a drink drink and not just a drink, like a drink of water, I steered you by the elbow into the next bar, which turned out to be a real bar bar, (laughs) dim and nearly empty with little tables in the back where we drank and agreed that the funeral was a real funeral funeral, (laughs) complete with a mass, incense, and tons of eulogies. You know, I always considered Tom a real friend friend, you said, (laughs) lifting your drink drink to your lips. And I agreed that Tom was much more than just an ordinary friend. And we concurred that Angela's black dress was elegant, but not like elegant elegant, (laughs) just elegant enough. And after a few hours, when the bartender brought yet another round of whiskeys to our table in the corner, we recognized by his apron and his mighty girth that he was more than just a bartender. A true bartender, bartender was what he was, we decided with a respectful clink-clink of our drink-drinks, amber in a chink of afternoon light. <clears throat> Thank you. I have a, a book coming out in, in um, October, and uh, this, I'm going to read the title, poem of the book, and it's called Aim- the book is called Aimless Love and other poems, but in this case, it's just aimless love. (laughs) Aimless love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone, the love of the chestnut, the jazz cap and one hand on the steering wheel. No lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, that highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, No huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in his light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, 
I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. Thank you. And here's a poem whose subject is adolescence, which um, I don't think adolescence existed until 1955 um, with uh, Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, now, it can, with grad- the help of graduate school, it can be extended into your 30s. Uh, we're very flexible about how we look at age now. Someone told me recently that um, one's 70s is the last decade of middle age. So, and this is uh, addressed to someone in particular. It's, it's um, titled, To My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that alone, so never mind. You're fine just as you are. You are loved for simply being yourself. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture, (laughs) Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room? No, wait, I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15, but then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15, or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosk at 17? We think you are special by just being you playing with your food and staring into space. (laughs) By by the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. Bless her little heart. <laughs> here's, something, um, here's something poets get. I, I don't think uh, musicians or playwrights or painters get this, but poets get this all the time. And uh, it's called the suggestion box. <laughs> it all began fairly early in the day at the coffee shop, as it turned out, when the usual waitress said, I bet you're going to write a poem about this after she had knocked a cup of coffee into my lap. (laughs) Then later in the morning I was told by a student that I should write a poem about the fire drill that was going on as we all stood on the lawn outside our building. In the afternoon, a woman I barely knew said, you could write a poem about that, pointing to a dirigible that was passing overhead. (laughs) 
And if all that were not enough, a friend turned to me as we walked past a man whose face was covered with tattoos and said, I see a poem coming. Why is everyone being so helpful? I wondered that evening by the shore of a lake. Maybe I should write a poem about all the people who think they know what I should be writing poems about. It was just then, in the fading light, that I spotted a pair of ducks emerging from a cluster of reeds to paddle out to open water, the female glancing back over her russet shoulder, just in time to see me searching my pockets for a pen. I knew it, she quacked, (laughs) with a bit of a brogue. But who can blame you for following your heart, she went on. Now go write a lovely poem about me and the mister. Crazy, right? It's a little. Um, well, let's get right to a couple of dog poems here before we get our first. This, these are um, um, two poems um, spoken in the voice of dogs, or um, you can imagine actually written by dogs if you like. And this one, and this one, a, a dog is uh, cont- uh, the dog is contemplating one of the um, one of the facts of dog ownership. Although ownership always struck me as uh, in- insufficient word to, descri- uh, to describe that relationship. It's sort of a co-ownership. Um, and it's called A Dog on His Master. As young as I look, I am growing older faster than he. Seven to one is the ratio they tend to say. Whatever the number, I will pass him one day and take the lead the way I do on our walks in the woods. And if this ever manages to cross his mind, it would be the sweetest shadow I have ever cast on snow or grass. Now, you made a little sound there. Um, I don't think there's a word for it, but, but um, that's the problem with writing about... <clears throat> I mean, I sometimes tell... Um, Students in, in poetry workshops, you know, that, that um, I said, why don't you have a dog come into the poem? I mean, it would just be a relief from the self-absorption for a few minutes. <laughs> and dogs just tend to cheer things up. But the danger is that any poem about a, a house pet can get extremely sentimental and produce that sound. So, <laughs> so here, the little task I set out for myself was to write a poem about a dog that would, uh, that would not make you make that sound. <laughs> so um, it's called The Revenant. It's a little longer than the, that poem, but not much. Uh, the Revenant. I am the dog you put to sleep, as you like to call the needle of oblivion. Come back to tell you this simple thing. I never liked you. <laughs> when I licked your face... I thought of biting off your nose. When I watched you toweling yourself dry, I wanted to leap and unman you with a snap. I resented the way you moved, your lack of animal grace, the way you would sit in a chair to eat, a napkin in your lap, a knife in your hand. I would have run away, but I was too weak, a trick you taught me while I was learning to sit and heal, and greatest of insults, 
shake hands without a hand. <laughs> I admit the sight of the leash would excite me, but only because it meant I was about to smell things you had never touched. <laughs> you do not want to believe this, but I have no reason to lie. I hated the car, hated the rubber toys, disliked your friends and worse, your relatives. The jingling of my tags drove me mad. You always scratched me in the wrong place. All I ever wanted from you was water and food in my, my metal bowls. While you slept, I watched you breathe as the moon rose in the sky. It took all of my strength not to raise my head and howl. Now I am free of the collar, free of the yellow raincoat, monogram sweater, the absurdity of your lawn. And that is all you need to know about this place, except what you already supposed, and are glad it did not happen sooner, that everyone here can read and write. <laughs> the dogs in poetry, the cats and all the others in prose. <laughs> Thank you. And here's a, another sort of tiny love poem called Carry, just the verb carry. I want to carry you and for you to carry me the way voices are said to carry over water. Just this morning on the shore, I could hear two people talking quietly in a rowboat on the far side of the lake. They were talking about fishing. Then one changed the subject, and I swear they began talking about you. And um, this is a poem called Nostalgia, and then I'll probably just read one more. Um, and um, you remember the 20th century, or some parts of it, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, so much happened. Uh, um, and one of, the, one of the things that happened in the, in the 20th century is that we got into the habit of, of referring to the past in decades. So we'd say, very knowledgeably, of course, well, that was like the 50s or... You know, that was a 70s thing. Or then it seemed that you could throw morality out the window as long as you realized what decade it was. You said, come on, it's the 80s, you know. Um, and the impression was that, you know, at every New Year's Eve, like, everything changed. You know, standards, morality, metaphors, music. Um, so, and the thing was, we were, I always felt we were, we were supposed to feel nostalgic, that was the emotion about the, the passing of these decades, as if we wanted to be stuck in one in some kind of eternal decade loop. So this plays off that, and it's called, again, nostalgia. Remember the 1340s? <laughs> we were doing a dance called the catapult. You always wore brown, the color craze of the decade. And I was draped in one of those capes that were popular the ones with unicorns and pomegranates and needlework. Everyone would pause for beer and onions in the afternoon. 
and at night we would play a game called Find the Cow. <laughs> Everything was hand-lettered back then, not like today. Where has the summer of 1572 gone? <laughs> Brocade and sonnet marathons were the rage. We used to dress up in the flags of rival baronies and conquer one another in cold rooms of stone. Out on the dance floor, we were all doing the struggle. <laughs> While your sister practiced the Daphne all alone in her room. We borrowed the jargon of farriers for our slang. These days, language seems transparent, a badly broken code. The 1790s will never come again. Childhood was big. People would take walks to the very tops of hills and write down what they saw in their journals without speaking. Our collars were high. Our hats were extremely soft. We would surprise each other with alphabets made of twigs. It was a wonderful time to be alive, or even dead. <laughs> I am very fond of the period between 1815 and 1821. Europe trembled while we sat still for our portraits. And I would love to return to 1901, if only for a moment, time enough to wind up a music box and do a few dance steps. Or shoot me back to 1922 or 1941, where at least let me recapture the serenity of last month when we picked berries and glided through afternoons in a canoe. Even this morning would be an improvement over the present. I was in the garden then, surrounded by the hum of bees and the Latin names of flowers, watching the early light flash off the slanted windows of the greenhouse and silver the limbs on the rows of dark hemlocks. As usual, I was thinking about the moments of the past, letting my memory rush over them like water rushing over the stones on the bottom of a stream. I was even thinking a little about the future, that place where people are doing a dance we cannot imagine, a dance whose name we can only guess. I think that's good. Can talk? I'll do one more. I do. Thank you so much. I'll do uh, um, one more poem. A poem uh, that I came about when I was looking through the notebooks of Robert Frost and like most, or journals, and like most of them, I mean, there were, everything was there, but it was not of uh, equal uh, interest. But what, um, I mean, it was just scribblings and stuff like that, but also drafts of some uh, famous poems. But one little uh, notation caught my eye, and in the corner he had written, I have, I have always envied the four-moon planet, at the time, I didn't even know there was a four-moon planet, but apparently Jupiter has four moons, or maybe 27 moons, I'm not sure. But, but Frost, I was curious about why he envied that. The four-moon planet. Maybe he was thinking of the song, What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and became curious about what a lot of moonlight might be capable of. But wouldn't this be too much of a good thing? And what if you couldn't tell them all apart and they always rose together like pale quadruplets entering a living room? Yes, there would be enough light to read a book or write a letter at midnight. And if you drank enough tequila, you might see eight of them <laughs> roving brightly above. But think of the two lovers on a beach 
his arm around her bare shoulder, thrilled at how close they were feeling tonight, while he gazed up at one moon and she another. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.